you know, entrepreneurship is just being told no and figuring out what you're going to do about it, right? So I was convinced that like there was really something here and that I would build it anyway, regardless of whether we could get an NVC because the resources are right there. So we never focused on making the finals. We were really focused on is there a real opportunity? Is there a real business? And what is the key milestone to prove next? We have a unique opportunity to get access to a lot of really great people. How do we make the most of that in this compressed time frame? Hello, and welcome to the Polsky Center's Where Are They Now podcast. I'm Colin Keeley, and we catch up with founders from Chicago Boost New Venture Challenge on this show. Join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success. This week, we have Mike Lavatola interviewed by Waverly Deutsch. Mike is the CEO and founder of Foxtrot, a first-of-its-kind retailer blending on-demand mobile delivery with beautifully designed brick-and-mortar stores. They deliver a curated shopping experience of craft beer, wine, spirits, eats, gifts, and everyday essentials. Waverly Deutsch is a professor at Chicago Booth and academic director of university-wide entrepreneurship content. As a full-time coach for the New Venture Challenge, Waverly is well-known for delivering brutally accurate feedback and storytelling that has come up in just about every episode of this podcast. Without further ado, here's Mike Lavatola and Waverly Deutsch. Hey, it's really good to see you again. So great to see you. How have things been for you and Foxtrot during this COVID period? Things have been up and down and all around, like I think for many of us. You know, we are, from a business perspective, I think, you know, one of the variables to sort of pivot the business to be really relevant to consumers, which is great. Um, and so we've, you know, just been spending so much of our time, you know, um, making sure that we're taking care of the employees and hiring folks and, you know, really thinking through how can we, you know, kind of be the best actors for ourselves and, you know, the folks across the supply chain too. So I'm going to take a step back before we explore what your business is that's done so well during COVID and ask you to talk a little bit about yourself. Where are you from and, and what was your life's journey to this entrepreneurship thing? Sure. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in a big Italian family. So I'm the oldest of, uh, oldest of six boys. Parents really wanted a girl and they didn't quite get it, but they thought <laughs> six was enough. They saw the pattern coming. So, you know, grew up in the North suburbs and went to Illinois for undergrad, which was great down in Champaign. And then ended up doing um, investment banking after college down in Austin, Texas. So, you know, I graduated in 2009, which is a great time to find an investment banking job. Oh, perfect. Perfect time. Uh, but ended up, you know, it, it all kind of worked out and uh, was working in sort of these large public-private partnership transactions, so roads and bridges and sports stadiums and and high-speed rail. So you know, banking, but in the context of these sort of real-world projects, which is really really um, interesting. So did that uh, down in Austin for a couple of years, and then you know thought it was time to apply to business school, and was just thrilled that the University of Chicago decided that I would be able to attend. So clearly that was my number one choice and had and it brought me back to Chicago. So sort of knowing that um you know that that was the case I went into I went into business school, you know, knowing that I wanted to get back into private equity. So I done um, internships in private equity and there was a new firm starting here in Chicago kind of focusing on those, you know, really the traditional Midwestern private equity focus, right? So, you know, 
uh, buying and fixing up sort of old line manufacturers uh, across the Midwest. And it was started by a couple of, you know, relatively young guys at the time. And so that's what I spent my summer leading into business school doing was I was their first employee. I was their first intern. And it was really sort of everything I wanted, right? So it was this really exciting world of private equity, but I was their first employee and I was getting in early and it had sort of married, you know, my sort of entrepreneurial desire without having to actually take a, you know, big, big um, giant risk. So I went into you know, the full-time program at Booth, um, interning for them and, you know, then intending to, uh, you know, get a great education at UFC. And join a private equity firm, which leads you to launching Foxtrot. How yeah. did that happen? Uh, so how did I take a hard right turn into the convenience store world? So I started school and, you know, fell in love with the classes, um, but again, also felt really fortunate that you know, I had kind of landed the at least internship that I'd wanted to at the private equity firm. And so I had all this kind of time to, you know, start kicking around ideas and what better place to do that, that than at Booth, right? Like there's so many interesting people and, you know, folks who had careers in marketing and CPG and startups and like just sort of all over the place. And I kept coming back to this trend that we were seeing, which was, you know, this being six, seven years ago, everything moving mobile, and there was so much innovation in the food and beverage space, but in the delivery side, it seemed like everything was either going sort of towards restaurant delivery. So like Grubhub and Seamless and the various companies that did that, or on the other end of the spectrum, grocery delivery. So Instacart was kind of just getting its foothold. You know, there's rumblings of Amazon getting into it. And to me, it left this big white space in the middle around convenience. And so as someone who was, you know, I think I was 25 at the time and single and living in the middle of River North, like, you know, I was doing all of my shopping at these like crummy little convenience stores. And there was just such a disconnect to me between, you know, Chicago is such a great city, like amazing neighborhoods all over the place. And no matter where you went, the thing at the main corner of each of these diverse, interesting neighborhoods is this kind of, you know, depressing generic corner store, which spoke nothing to the neighborhoods that they were in. And at the same time, there was just all this amazing product throughout the city in terms of great locally roasted coffee and these amazing craft brewers and, you know, bakeries. And there just was no natural home for these kind of everyday convenience goods and certainly not online. And so, you know, that was sort of the initial idea behind the company was, you know, could the big guys, 7-Eleven or whoever, have figured out broadly which categories drive frequency, right? So you think about, you know, beverages in the morning and snacks in the midday. Could we go in and re-merchandise those categories with products that we loved and with a really heavy tilt towards local to sort of give those businesses a platform and deliver it on demand? And so that was the first iteration of the company, which was this under an hour you know, uh, delivery service of sort of our dream basket of everyday goods. So Mike, coming from a banking and PE background, sounds like an awfully academic idea. So why couldn't we have convenience store delivery? It doesn't sound necessarily like a traditional entrepreneur's path of you know, living in a, a particular world and identifying a problem in that particular world kind of sounds like you sat in a conference room and tried to come up with a great idea. <laughs> so I would actually beg to differ. So the kind of founding thing was like, I love these products and I didn't know where I could get them. Right. And so like a city like Chicago, again, there's like new breweries popping up all the time. 
I was, and I feel like my friends were generally cool enough to know that we should be drinking craft beer, but that's kind of where it stopped, right? So who's actually making the best stuff and when does it come out and why should I be trying to, you know, drink a Saison in this season and a Porter in another one, right? And, and so I felt like there were sort of all these consumers like us out there who sort of knew, you know, hard kombucha is the trend. We should be getting into it, but like, where do you even start, right? And, and so there was this kind of problem of like access to the goods because they were hard to find, but then also the sort of education behind them. And to do that in retail, we thought was really, really hard, but to do that online where, you know, especially in an app environment, like that's such a perfect place to sort of uh, elevate that content and interview the makers and, you know, really kind of bring a lot of education to these sort of new and emerging trends. And so the first version of the company or the company that we had hoped to start was, you know, like, how do I find you know, enough credible people to kind of show us the way on all these new interesting items across the categories that we're shopping the most every day. Cause the default is, all right, I'll go down to the bodega and buy the same, you know, Bud Light that I always buy, but that's feels disingenuous when there's all these amazing products around us. Oh, I should have known it was a graduate student needing beer type of problem. That's most important. Most important. So you had this idea and you had this opportunity to explore this idea because you were in business school. What was your next step with it? So, you know, I just kind of kept like, you know, kick testing this and trying to figure out like why no one had done it. Cause you know, delivery of these items didn't seem like, it seemed like such an obvious idea that if it was possible, someone would have done it. Right. And so, you know, the first kind of tranche of this was getting really into the weeds on the legal side and figuring out like, is alcohol delivery illegal? Like, how do you set up wholesale relationships? Like, you know, can you deliver things from local bakeries or is there some set of regulations that I don't know about that everyone else knows about and that's why no one's doing it. And, you know, we sort of beat down enough doors to figure out it's pretty murky, but it's definitely allowed, but you just have to kind of do it in the right sort of framework. And no one had thought about doing it on the internet yet, which just sounded kind of crazy to me. And so, you know, as we thought about, all right, well, if it's legally possible and it seems like there's a clear consumer need, like how do you actually stand this up to figure out if it's a real business or not? And that was sort of, you know, the winter of my first year, which led into NVC. So I did, you know, what anyone in Booth with a Great Idea does. And I wrote this, what I thought was super great uh, NVC proposal and I submitted it and then was flatly rejected. So I think that was step number one in the entrepreneurial journey was, all right, this is a great idea. We're gonna take it through NVC. You don't get into NVC, now what? Yeah, I was one of the professors on the committee uh, when the feedback came in on your feasibility summary and we looked at it and we said, these guys have done a lot of academic work and they've done all kinds of modeling, but." They haven't really gotten out there into the market. They haven't really thought about the operations. This can't possibly can't possibly work. You know, we'll we'll let them take another crack at it for next year. So after we so so roundly rejected you, what did you do? I mean, you know, that's really been a theme, you know, up until like last month and last week, right? I mean, you know, entrepreneurship is just being told no and figuring out what you're gonna do about it, right? So, you know, by this time I was convinced that like there was really something here and that I would I would build it anyway, regardless of whether we could get an NVC, but it seems silly to not just do everything we could to get in because like, you know, the resources are right there. So I think I uh, convinced Professor Kaplan to 
sit down for 30 minutes and hear out why, you know, why we thought this was a good idea, but I think more so just that we were really committed to it. And I think that's what ultimately sort of allowed us to enter the program was he saw that we were serious about it. And this wasn't just, you know, it was probably very easy to dismiss, you know, dude wants beer delivered app. There was a lot more behind it, a lot more soul behind it, I think. And after he heard that, you know, look, we were doing this come hell or high water, um, something clicked and we were uh, fortunately able to uh, join the class. So absolutely persistence and overcoming obstacles, big, big part of entrepreneurship. NVC was a an early example of that for you. What What did going through the NVC do for your business? It's a great forcing mechanism, right? So, you know, one of the blessings of being at a great business school is you're just afforded an unbelievable amount of opportunities. And so, you know, in terms of internships, companies, you know, wanted to interview you like all these great things, right? And so, you know, if you're really going to go down this path, you're kind of saying no to a lot of, you know, kind of like guaranteed opportunities. And I think the NVC almost overcompensates in a way to say, hey, like, this is going to be really hard. Like, your idea is really dumb. Here's why it's not going to work. Here are 20 people telling you, you know, things you've never thought about of like, you know, obstacles that you don't even know about yet. And you kind of come out the other side, either being like, all right, yeah, you're right. That seems like a mess. I'm just going to do the sort of safe thing or emboldened by it and said, you know what? Like, you know, I, I, I kind of took this three months of feedback. I still think there's a real market here. And then taking that next, you know, risk, which is all right, like we're going to go, we're going to kind of go build this thing. So we entered NVC like, you know, and like really with just a PowerPoint, which I don't think you can even do anymore, but it really was just an idea. And we came out of it completely transform, right? So what's been interesting about this company, I think, is the vision I had then is literally almost the exact same vision I have now, but the operations behind it are what change, you know, all the time and like how you actually actualize it. And so again, entered NBC with the PowerPoint, left with renewed conviction around the idea. You know, the first version of the business was a delivery-only convenience store, right? So I'd found somewhere to source the products. I had found someone to deliver the products. And then I'd also renewed a friendship with my co-founder and CTO Taylor to actually build the digital version of it, right? And so if you think about making all that progress in three months, that's just, you know, I know there's no way I would have done that on my own. So did you win NVC the year you went through? You win. I don't think we even sniffed the finals, but it was kind of not the point, right? Like it was really a, you know, as I say, forcing mechanism to figure out like, are you serious about this? Is this a real idea? And, you know, should you take the next step? I always say to my students, winning the NVC is actually creating a company that's successful and goes out and scales. So in my mind, you won the NVC, but you're right. You didn't even make the finals that year. Just goes to show you how good we are at picking them. What would you say to the teams that are going through the NVC who don't make the finals? I mean, I don't know if this is the wrong thing to say. We never focused on making the finals. Like We were really focused on again, like, is there a real opportunity? Is there real business? And what is the key milestone to prove next? I would have loved getting into the finals. It would have been incredible to win for monetary reasons and press and just like a lot of pride, but it really wasn't the focus for us. It was, we have a unique opportunity to get access to a lot of really great people. How do we make the most of that in this compressed timeframe? So did any of the people that you meet during the NVC go on to play a role in establishing the actual business? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we were lined up pretty early from, you know, one of the senior guys at, at a Grubhub at the time who for the first, 
you know, couple years of the company was really actively involved from a strategic perspective and also just as a kind of, you know, like, are we crazy for doing this? Like in, in many, many moments, we met several folks who became investors, you know, two or three years later. You know, I think one thing that we did really well was leverage our participation in the NVC to get access to folks in the industry who we would have otherwise never had reason to speak with. Like, I think that's such a unique thing about being at a place like Booth and, and being in the NVC is that very, very senior folks in the industry that you're trying to go in will take calls with you or take meetings with you just by sort of your, you know, being in the program. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, getting access to those kind of folks to validate a lot of our early ideas. Can you give us an example of somebody that you actually talked to that you think the NVC really facilitated that relationship? Yeah. So, you know, there was an, a very early version of our business called Cosmo.com back. Like, I think it was like literally the poster child for the like 2001, uh, you know, dot com bust. Right. And it was like, you know, fast delivery of everything in New York City and they burn hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was a complete disaster. Yeah. But I want to say that because the CEO of that company was a booth grad and, you know, we were able to connect with him and he very quickly was like, look, the you know issue with this company was never demand. Like that, that was completely on fire where they got kind of, you know, trapped in this treadmill of growth. And here were kind of three major pitfalls to watch out for. So from a strategic perspective, incredibly helpful. And then as we went out to, you know, talk to other people or fundraise, they would always mention, oh, this sounds like Cosmo. Uh, you know, have you like thought about that? And we could be like, not only have we thought about it, but we have all this great insight. So there were so many great examples of folks like that along the way who really helped shape the journey. So when you launched out of the NBC, you were an online only convenience store. Now you're not an online only convenience store. Can you tell us about that pivot? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really been a series of pivots. So after the NBC we had products to sell, we had people to deliver them, and we had my co-founder to build the digital side. So fantastic. So by the end of that summer, you know, we built it. It was live and we were doing deliveries, which was like pretty awesome, right? Like we, we had a product in the market and people besides our friends were using it. Like to me, that was like everything. So, you know, that was the next checkpoint of like, okay, you know, I've got another year left in school, right? And so really I sort of used the second year in business school to attend school full-time and then just run this business. And over that first, you know, probably 12 to 18 months, revenue grew every month. You know, it wasn't like a astronomical growth, but it reliably grew every month. And the more that we've refined the model, refined the data, refined the product mix, like things worked, right? And I think kind of most importantly, the things that were working were the things that most aligned with my vision of, okay, like, if this got really, really big, what would have to be true? And that's what customers were were responding to. So we ran the business online only for about two and a half years and eventually got to the point where it's like, okay, we got to scale this thing if it's going to be a, a real business. The things that customers were responding to is A, the convenience, right? You press a button and wine and ice cream shows up and that's pretty cool. But it was much more so our curation of the products. And, you know, going back to that founding insight of like, it wasn't just, you know, you get, get ice cream delivered, but it was, you know, Jenny's ice cream, which is our favorite thing out of Columbus. And you had to hear about them. And we have all the latest flavors, right? Or hard to get craft beer, or, you know, we would be, you know, working with bakers where we were their only outlet, right? So it was this really unique product mix that you could only get from Foxtrot. And to really have control over that, we had to carry our own products. So we had been kind of faking it 
and you would order products from us. And on the back end, we would be in, in grocery stores filling them. Customers didn't know, but like I was living in these grocery stores. And so we had to get our own warehouse. And the way liquor laws worked in Chicago, but also most of the major markets we wanted to scale into, it was illegal to deliver beer and wine from a warehouse. So we're like, okay, you know, this is kind of one of those risk moments where it's like, we, we got to sign a lease. It's got to be a retail lease to sort of do everything in, uh, you know, up to the letter of the law. Um, but we got to do it if that's what's going to work here. So we signed this cheap out of the way lease in the West Loop of Chicago. And we opened it up as a retail store, but really it was just meant to kind of be the warehouse for the e-commerce business. And as you know, folks who know Chicago listening to this will know, the West Loop is no longer cheap nor out of the way. And so what happened was our e-com warehouse which we made to look kind of cool because I was essentially living in this thing. You know, the neighborhood around us just grew up and Google moved in and all the cool restaurants moved in. And pretty quickly, our warehouse became this like hip bodega in the hip part of town, right? And so people were coming in and having espresso in the morning and taking meetings there and grabbing wine after work. And it just became this total embodiment for the brand. And that was kind of the second big aha moment was, you know, no one like 7-Eleven or whoever was not going to figure out how to make a relevant retail brand like this, right? Like no, people weren't going to be going in and having kind of these, you know, like meeting friends for like coffee there. And so there's a massive, massive opportunity on the retail side of convenience to sort of reinvent the format. And then for the e-com side, when you plotted our deliveries on a map, they were all on top of the store. So instead of being in the denser parts of downtown where you'd think they'd be, it was very, very clear that the store was driving uh, customer acquisition. And, you know, it's really hard to raise money. Um, so we didn't really have any of it. And so we weren't paying for paid marketing. And so these stores are really what was driving acquisition. And so that kind of insight of, hey, we can open up a lot of stores, those should generate a lot of revenue, those should make a lot of money. But then that's actually what's building this community with our delivery business. And, you know, that's what's kind of driving the synergy there. Like, that's, that's what was really, really interesting. So we kind of over the last three years have been experimenting a lot on the retail side of the business, moving from these sort of, you know, warehousey type locations and kind of, you know, like a couple blocks off where you'd want to be to ultimately, you know, kind of what we've been doing over the past year, which is, you know, really becoming part of the neighborhood, finding sort of buildings we love in neighborhoods we love and, you know, really trying to be what we think the fullest potential of a corner store can be and building the business around that. So is the scaling plan moving forward to drive more traffic through the online model that was your original model, or do you want to scale out and be Starbucks and be on every corner? So we view it as one and the same. So right now, you know, our business is about 50% online, 50% in retail, but really our e-com growth strategy is our retail strategy, right? And so what we're able to do is, you know, sort of enter a neighborhood with the store that, you know, is highly stocked with like local products, friendly staff, and, you know, create this space. that's not a generic kind of, you know, stamped out store, but we, we spend a lot of time on the, the design, the architecture and the actual team themselves so that it feels like it's part of your neighborhood because it is. So, you know, those four walls can stand on themselves from a business perspective, right? There, it's a profitable four wall store. But we are able to, you know, then introduce all those customers to our e-commerce business, which then ends up becoming the larger share of the mix because obviously, you know, think, you know, the e-commerce can scale faster than the retail can. So the strategy is open up a lot of retail and use that as kind of the base to ultimately scale the e-commerce business. 
But you know, as, as we look at our customer data, most of our customers are shopping with us cross-channel. And what's interesting is once you get someone to come from retail to online, they actually end up spending more across both platforms. And that's kind of what our ultimate goal is, is you know, we like know that you're going to dine out at these great restaurants. We know that you're going to stock up at your favorite grocery store for those kind of weekly trips, but we want to be everything else in the middle. And sometimes that means you want to pop out of your house and go on a walk and grab a latte. Sometimes it means you want to sit on your couch and get it delivered, but it should be the same kind of consistent brand experience across both. So discovering that your retail locations were driving so much of your marketing and making the decision to sort of double down on, on locations and and retail, you raised a, a nice size round. I believe it was seventeen million at the beginning of two thousand and one, and then COVID hit. Yes, and I will say, you know, the seventeen million—that's one of those kind of everything always looks good in the headline. I think that was the combination of everything we had raised for the prior twenty-four months, and we never had maybe more than twenty-five percent of that at once. Fundraising is a topic we can certainly talk about. But look, I mean, like we were able to, you know, just kind of grind it out and keep telling the story and, you know, keep some cash in the, in, in the bank account to kind of keep proving out this story. And then you're right, like we had finally kind of got, you know, some semblance of, a, of an early stage balance sheet together and COVID hit, which has been a crazy year. So, you know, kind of the, the sort of obvious thing that happened is that, you know, e-commerce skyrocketed, right? So we deliver essential goods and people didn't want to leave their house. And so sales went kind of crazy. But what was not obvious is, you know, sort of what it actually meant to fulfill those orders at the store level, right? I mean, like we were spending essentially all of our time thinking like, can we be open? Can we keep our employees safe? Can we keep our customers safe? Like, and really it was just a day by day, like, you know, what are the best decisions we can make for the staff, our customers, then the like business kind of every day. And it was like every day felt like a week during those first kind of kind of couple months. And so it was, you know, the the first time we never had to worry about demand, but we were worrying about just about everything else. And so, you know, we, you know, got got like I was going around to every store every day. And so was our ops team. And it was a lot to get through together, but I think built a large amount of camaraderie within our teams, you know, realizing sort of how essential we we became to our customers, but then also to a lot of the smaller vendors we were carrying, right? So, you know, if you think about the like local bakeries or the local craft beer guys, you know, like they, like all the restaurants went away, all their bar business went away. And we were, you know, in some cases, their biggest lifelines during this time. So it was a really interesting kind of perspective on the ecosystem. That's really rewarding. Um, I do have a question of when Mayor Lightfoot shut down all the retail your retail was also your back office operations for your e-commerce business. So did you have any issues with the city when you needed to be in your stores doing your, your e-commerce business? It's all such a blur. We made it work. So that's the part I remember is that we made it work. It was every day, you know, the kind of interesting thing, you know, I, I don't know why I expected it to be different, but it's not like, you know, we found out anything early, right? Like we just like see the news and we're like, okay, I guess we can do that now or we can't do that now. And it's just reacting in real time, just constantly. So we were, you know, we, because we held so many different licenses, grocery, retail, on-premise, restaurant, we, we were able to kind of piece together the pieces of the business at whatever time we had to piece them together to like make things work. So it definitely wasn't pretty and it's definitely super confusing, but 
you know, like, again, that's an entrepreneurship is you just kind of like, these are the cards you're dealt and you figure it out. So Mike, you didn't come out of a background where you had a lot of management experience and this business really changed over time from an e-commerce business where your main concern is making sure that you get the technology into the hands of all the people and you can fulfill the orders to a back office business, to a retail business with, with front of house employees. How have you grown as a CEO through this process? I think it's just by doing everything first, right? So, I mean, you know, it's like, I think you realize early on that like, if you're not doing it, no one's doing it, right? Because it's literally just you. So everything is literally just you. And then, you know, like I remember, um, and I was really, really fortunate to have Taylor as my co-founder, who's our CTO, because, you know, he had such a mastery kind of on the engineering side that I never had to worry about that. And so I felt so lucky that I had him doing that, that it was like, all right, I can figure out how to like, you know, bag groceries. I can figure out how to hire couriers. I can figure out, you know, how to hop in Ubers when like we, we get over capacity, right? It was like, kind of like my problems were the operational problems and his problems were the smart technical problems. And then, you know, like I remember when we opened the, you know, our first, you know, quote store, which was just the like e-com warehouse. It's like, how do you open a warehouse? Like, I don't know. You just kind of figure it out, test and learn. Like, how do you hire store teams? Like, you just kind of do it and you learn. So like, I think you have to be kind of humble about it. You need to talk to smart people who have done it before, but there's just no substitute for just like rolling up your sleeves and doing the work, you know, yourself. Was there ever a point at which you thought, I can't do this? There were many, many points. Again, I would point back to the good fortune of having a great co-founder. And, you know, we came from very different backgrounds, right? So him on the engineering side, me kind of on the everything else side. And so, you know, we, I mean, for those first four or five years, it was like, you know, there were some days I would just be like, what in God's name are we doing? And be so down. And just like, you know, we have like just low, low, low points, but like he would somehow be okay. Right. And then, you know, he would get down and just be like, oh my God, I passed up all, you know, just like, what the heck? Like, we're just, you know, living inside these grocery stores. Like what kind of life decisions have, you know, with no money. And we've like, you know, we're like, do we throw away all these opportunities to do what? Right. But we, sort of were able to keep ourselves in balance. And if he was having a low day, I would like pick us up. And if I was having a low day, he, 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 he would kind of pick us up. And as the you know, team has grown, you know, we have you know, kind of more, more people to share the highs and the lows with. But in those early days, it was so helpful to have that, that uh, sort of um, teammate. Building a consumer brand is really expensive. And you said that when you started, you weren't doing a lot of marketing and a lot of your traffic to your website was coming from the foot traffic to the store. As you think about getting bigger, as you think about scaling Foxtrot, what do you think about on the brand building and marketing side of the equation? Our marketing is our brand. I think if we're good at anything, it's that. Like We've had a very clear vision of what is Foxtrot, what isn't. And you know, I think that most explicitly lent itself to the private label side. So, you know, if you look two years ago, 0% of our sales are private label, right? So what we were really good at is, you know, finding all these new amazing products and getting them into one place and having a really discovery driven menu. We still do that. But what we're building internally now is taking all the data from sort of trends we're seeing, what's selling, marrying that with your own intuition uh, and developing private label products, right? So, you know, as of like last month, 30% of our sales are now Foxtrot branded products, right? And that's very explicit things like the sandwiches and the salads we make, but it also lends itself to like, you know, 
a bunch of wine on our shelves is juice that we source from wineries that we love that have a label on it that doesn't say Foxtrot anywhere. That's a really, really healthy gross margin. That's, you know, again, product that we love, but that is informed by insights, right? And those labels are the ones that customers like the best and are sought after and lead in our, in our marketing. So, you know, when you, when we think about where the business is sort of going, it's developing products that you can only get at Foxtrot, building buzz around those and having those sort of be the acquisition moments versus, you know, just paying to acquire generic users and then, you know, deploying a whole bunch of like retention strategies against them. So when you think about scale, why is Chicago a good place to start a company? Why is Chicago a bad place to start a company? And where will you, where will you go next? Chicago is a good place to start a company because there's a lot of, well, on the consumer side, there's a lot of great consumers, right? It's a, it's a huge city, but with like plenty of different neighborhoods to test in. And from a talent perspective, you know, sort of everyone you need is here, right? And if you're recruiting in the right way, like you can, you can assemble a really, really top-notch team in Chicago. And from a consumer standpoint, there's not a heck of a lot of competition, right? So like, you know, you're, you're not in San Francisco or New York where you're competing against, you know, an unbelievable amount of super well-funded startups competing for the same talent, right? So you've got a great consumer base and you've got a great set of talent to build your company. The flip side of that is, you know, funding and, you know, example of one here, but I'm sure you're talking a lot to folks on this podcast, you know, Chicago is not certainly not a wash in early stage financing like it is on the coast and it's a real challenge. So, you know, there's sort of two sides of the coin there. So talk, talk a little bit about your fundraising. Retail is not the most popular business model for venture capitalists, but you've, you've raised what? close to 50 million at this point. Is that, is that correct? And, and how did you do that? Close to 50 million. Yeah. But, you know, really almost all that in the last 18 months. So, you know, we, we probably raised a total of geez, 6 million over the first five years or something and never had more than probably a half million in, in the bank account. And, you know, keep in mind too, like for the first years of the company, there was no hint of retail. It was supposed to be an online only company with no inventory. And, you know, like essentially this very, very asset light model. And, you know, I think we, naively thought like we, you know, were relatively smart. We were able to get meetings with, you know, whoever we needed to get meetings with. We had a real product. That product was growing, you know, was, you know, certainly more than doubling every year. In most cases it was tripling. You know, we were doing, I don't know, at that point, millions of dollars of revenue and we couldn't put together like a million dollar seed round. And it's just, you know, it was very, I mean, I spent, you know, so much of my time, like an unbelievable amount of time trying to put that together. So fundraising is a constant grind. Some people have the gift and can get it done and others kind of have to grind it out. But, you know, if you've got conviction in the sort of product market fit and sort of ultimately where the business can go, you just, you know, make it work. A lot of entrepreneurs struggle with the question of how much they're going to have to give up to get outside money control, shares, equity. What do you think are the trade-offs for taking outside capital to build your business? I think it really depends on the ultimate scale of the business. So for Foxtrot, you know, I never thought like if it worked, it was going to kind of work, right? Like I wasn't here to build like a, you know, 10 store chain and whatever. Like to me, it's like if it worked in Chicago, it was going to work 30 times over in Chicago, 50 times over in New York and a thousand times all, you know, globally, right? Like 
like the market was so, so, so big that to get to where I needed to go, I had to raise outside capital. It was the only way to sort of get to a meaningful enough scale to justify the idea. Now, juxtapose that with someone starting like a CPG company, right? Like there is, you know, like sort of a sweet spot of natural exits there. And you need to be really conscious of the capital you you bring in, the you know valuation you're you're bringing that in at, and not like uh, essentially not overcapitalize the business such that you're you know limiting uh, where where you can take it. So it depends on every business, but like I think ultimately it has the most to do with you know where you want to take the company. And I what I would also say, and this is probably the most obvious statement in the world, but you you should feel very comfortable with the folks that you're taking capital from. So even though we had an unbelievably hard time raising money for, I mean, years and years and years, like there were times when we finally had access to it and you just get that pit in your stomach. It's like, this isn't the right deal. This feels non-standard. This feels like as much as we need this infusion, like we can't be signing a deal like this. And we never did. And I look back and feel so fortunate on that. Cause I know, you know, if you get, sort of into bed with the wrong partner, like you're done. So you, you know, really, really need to make sure that you're bringing folks on board who are aligned with you and your mission. When Howard Schultz was thinking about how quickly he could scale Starbucks, uh, one of the things he considered was franchising. Would you ever consider franchising Foxtrot out? No. And we're fortunate to have had those conversations with um, him and a uh, 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 very senior Starbucks exec just joined the team. So now we're definitely not in the early days anyway. So, so much of what makes Foxtrot special, I believe is the feeling you get when you're in a store, right? Like, like that, like that is the brand and it's the merchandising. It's the way we design the stores. It's the way that we, you know, hire for the store teams and do store education. And it's just this mix of all these elements that, you know, I don't even trust us enough to put down the playbook because we're all still kind of figuring it out. But I know that if we turned it over to someone else, it would lose the soul of what we're doing. And I know it sounds kind of wishy-washy, but like it's true, right? And we and we're we can't just like stamp these things out because you lose what's special and then you're done. So, you know, we are fortunate that I think e-commerce, like as I mentioned, is six is fifty percent of the business now, and but will ultimately be the the sort of, you know, line share of the revenue. So we don't need to sort of chase every last dollar in retail and we need, and when we go into retail, we need those experiences to be sort of the best representations of our brand. And to do that in a franchise model just seems more difficult than I would know how to do. So I, I think you opened your, your first store outside of Chicago in Dallas and you're headed to DC. Can you tell us what you see for Foxtrot over the next five years? Yeah. So, you know, we opened our first stores in Dallas like a year and a half ago, and then DC just opened up last month. And, you know, we chose Dallas, um, probably non obvious market, but it's because, you know, I, like, as, as I mentioned, I was living in Austin and my co-founder Taylor's from Dallas and we knew the neighborhoods and we knew the real estate and we knew the local products and we knew that's what made Foxtrot special here. And so while we built kind of the internal muscle to scale to a net new city like DC, we knew we had to get that stuff right. And so we felt good about that in Dallas and have, you know, kind of built that muscle to now launch in DC, which is going really well. So, you know, over the next kind of 12 to 24 months, you'll see us opening up in, you know, several new cities um, while continuing to go deeper and deeper in the markets we're in. So in Chicago, for example, we've got, uh, we've got eight stores now and we've got another four opening here this year. So 
as we find buildings and neighborhoods that we love, we're you know certainly going to continue to expand there and then be really thoughtful about going into new national markets as well. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who think they want to come up with a great idea and give it a give it a try? It's interesting that you phrase it that way, like come up with a great idea. Like I don't know how you come up with a great idea. Like I think it's got to be something that is just gnawing at you constantly that you have to do because otherwise it's totally not worth it. And like, as, as I think about how hard the, the journey has been, I really do think back to that the sort of vision I had, had for the brand early on has been super consistent to how it is today. And that guiding light has sort of made all the big decisions clear. So, you know, I really do think it's got to come from something internal and then just be ready to put in way more time and way more, you know, kind of, uh, heartache and knows than you expect to make it happen. So Mike, uh, what are the worst times you've had at Foxtrot? You really try to block a lot of them out, but you know, I alluded to sort of fundraising earlier, right. And we had this really, really big vision and I had so much conviction into what the brand was and what it can ultimately become. But you know, you like do need capital to, put that stuff into motion. And for whatever reason, we had a really, really hard time raising it. And so, you know, over those first, God, four or five years, we, we probably came, I mean, definitely within two weeks of missing payroll, you know, five times and within 12 hours, probably two or three. And like in real moments of like, I have exhausted every possible option. I have no leverage left. Like I have no money. I have no clue how to keep this thing. You just a complete loss of, you know, you're just like out of options and you got nothing. You just, you just have to kind of keep going. And as the company goes on, I mean, you know, not that it was huge at that point, but like, it's more, it's more than just you, right? Like you, you have employees. And then when we had stores, like, you know, we have a lot of hourly employees and, you know, like they're all counting on you to kind of figure it out. And I think, you know, those are kind of the lessons you learn you learn earlier are, you know, like how much risk can you take on and, you know, how do you kind of keep this thing going when like for all intents and purposes, like it's dead, you know? And how do you personally deal with the stress of having people's livelihoods rely on you? It's a lot. And you, you go into it, not recognizing that, right. Cause it, at first it's just you, right. Or you and your co-founder you're like, whatever, like I can figure this out. I'm young. I, you know, it's all good if it doesn't work, but then, but then you start taking on some money. Right. And so now you've got other people's money and, you know, we didn't, we couldn't raise any institutional money for many, many years. And so it's not like, you know, we're, we're going to lose some fancy VCs firms million dollars. Like, you know, like it's Mr. And Mrs. So-and-so's like, you know, $25,000 that like they invested in, like, you know, you really, really don't want to lose that. And, and then as you start onboarding employees, like, you know, they've all taken a risk working for you and it's like very specifically for you. And so the kind of stress of like, yes, like this thing failing is bad news for you, but it like directly impacts like their paycheck that they're not going to get next week is very tough. So it's definitely not something that I, you know, kind of um, thought about going into it, but just as the company kind of kept getting bigger and bigger, but our balance sheet didn't, it, 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 it was an increasing worry like every day. Uh, Mike, we couldn't be happier that you came out of Booth and the new venture challenge, and we couldn't be more proud of of what you've accomplished at Foxtrot, and we can't can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks so much for this conversation. 
Thanks so much for having me. All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks, and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care. Take care.